All right. Uh, in the packet that you have in front of you, there are obviously the fill-in-the-blank pages, pages one and two, and then there's quite a few scripture uh, passages that we're going to be looking at today, tonight. And then on the very back is the bibliography. I believe in your copy, I think um, I have bolded the first um, entry in the bibliography. Uh, I'm going to try to do this as much as I can from now on, uh, is just bold the, the sources that I used for this handout. Um, Cornelius Van Dam is that first entry, and his book, The Elder, Today's Minister, Rooted in All of Scripture, is where most everything, maybe everything, I, I can't remember if I put anything in myself in this or not, but um, most everything in the handout portion comes from. It's a good book. He doesn't see eye to eye with me on everything. Uh, that's fine. I don't expect an author to, I don't agree with myself half the time. Uh, so, you know, so, you know, so how can anybody else agree with me, you know? Uh, I'm joking halfway, but, uh, uh, but, and he, he is Presbyterian in his, in his leaning and kind of sees elder, elders somewhat differently, but his book is nevertheless pretty helpful in that he basically goes back to the beginning of Scripture and goes, this isn't a new thing. This, is, this has been going on for a long time. And so um, I want to just review where we've been over the last, uh, well, two weeks ago now it's been, um, and, and also remind you, I'll be on vacation next week. So it, this is just that weird kind of time where we have a couple of different, uh, you know, hiccups, but we'll get through the material nonetheless um, for our member meeting on April 30th. But just to remind you of where we were last time, um, there are, remember there are two synonymous terms in the New Testament that are used for the, the office that we're talking about. That is the office we typically call elder, um, which it, it, the two terms are elder and overseer. And you can see that in Acts 20. We'll, we'll read one of those verses, I think, tonight. But uh, in Acts 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to him. And you can read that passage later. But in, I think it's maybe verse 21-ish, somewhere around there, he calls the uh, elders to him, and then in 28, he says, you have been made overseers, which is the verse we'll read tonight. Um, so it's pretty clear in the New Testament, and that's not the only passage, there's several others where the term elder and overseer, they're the same thing. And then not only that, but then uh, several other passages in Scripture take the title pastor and then throw that in there as well. So what, what it seems to be pretty clear in the New Testament, elder overseer, it's the same office. Pastor is more describing the gifting or the thing that elders and overseers do. So uh, it's sort of an interesting term, the word pastor. It really is designed to just kind of say the word shepherd. It's, it's, it's basically, that's what it means, is a shepherd. Someone is, who is a guide or whatever. And, uh, and you'll see that fleshed out a little bit tonight. Two, but those three terms, elder, overseer, pastor, are really synonymous. We mean them really effectively the same way. So when you say pastor, you are saying elder, you're saying overseer of the church. Uh, and so anyone called by the, t by the title pastor, that, that's his role is elder or overseer, should be his role is elder or overseer. Um, the New Testament churches... Um, this is sort of a common misconception, is that the New Testament churches were not governed by one person or not even led in the terms of elder or overseer or pastor by one person ever, but were led by a group of men who held the office of elder, overseer, or pastor. They're referred to as pastors, they're referred to as elders. More commonly in the New Testament, they'll be referred to as elders or overseers. And it was a, it was a, plural, it was a plural office, meaning the office was that of elder, and the, the people that held that were elders. There were more than one. And so every time you see the word elder in the New Testament, unless it's referring to a singular person, Peter refers to himself as an elder, right? So it'd be in the singular. But outside of references like that, it is in the plural in the New Testament. And no passage ever in the New Testament ever suggests that there was just one pastor in the church. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It says that they went into the churches and appointed elders in every church, 
which is how you would say more than one man in the office of elder, overseer, pastor in every single church. Um, and that's how the New Testament lays this out. And then third, um, the duties, or the responsibilities in the New Testament of the elder are best summed up in really a fourfold manner. They taught sound doctrine. They led the church in discipline. That could be the positive form of discipline, meaning this is how we practice the Christian life. Let's, be, let's work this way, that kind of discipline. But it could also be the discipline of the correction. The, the, we, sh- we shouldn't do that. Leading the church to discipline an, a member of the church. So they, they did that. Um, plan and execute the direction of the church. See this all throughout Acts and many other places. Plan and execute the direction of the church. And distinguish themselves by modeling how to live the Christian life. So they are, they are called to a certain uh, pattern for their character. And they have to meet those standards of character. And there's a reason for that is because they're setting an example, or they're trying to set an example for how the congregation should live. And that doesn't mean they're going to be perfect at all. Uh, and quite the opposite. It, that's the reason for a plural group. <laughs> More than one person um, to, to be doing that. So tonight, which seems, that what we're doing tonight seems kind of backwards because we, we talked about the New Testament last Time, and now we're going to talk about the Old Testament. But really tonight is designed for a, a couple of reasons. One is to, is to say this, is, this has been going on for a long time, and uh, elders have been, have been the plan from the beginning. But, but it's also to say certain things from the Old Testament can actually inform us or help us understand a, the bigger picture of what God is accomplishing in his people, and what he has actually equipped people to do, and how he has directed his body through the leaders that he has appointed over them. And so, perhaps you can maybe see some, um, how do I say this, that, that the Old Testament might provide for you after tonight, hopefully, some encouragement, that I can go back into the Old Testament and read this, and I can kind of I can see some straight lines that are being drawn from Old Testament to New Testament that, that me and, and the people that are there in the Exodus are, are, are not all that different, you know, in, in how God is, is uh, leading us. So uh, hopefully it will also be some encouragement. So first thing we need to see is that elders arose in Israel as tribes developed. Okay, so there's a big unwieldy group of people that have now been populated in the land of Goshen, and there rose up a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, right? And so these people got to go somewhere, so boom, ten plagues later, they're headed out past the Red Sea, and they're going into the land of Sinai, and there's a, there's a, a massive group of people. But in the middle of that process of them going down to Egypt as 12 sons, and then growing to be this massive amount of people in the land of Goshen, they began to develop a structural system, even as slaves, for how they might be governed, or how they might be led, or how they might be instructed or kept together. And as these tribes of Israel developed, under these twelve houses, the twelve sons of of Jacob, as these, these tribes developed, the elders arose as kind of the heads of families. So here is the oldest member, wisest member, most senior kind of veteran member of the family, the patriarch, so to speak, that sort of holds the family together, teaches the family, and is otherwise responsible for the family. He becomes sort of the de facto elder of that family. And then as the tribes develop as a whole, which is really a collection of families, then they begin to see elders of the tribe as a whole, right? So the elders of Judah, the elders of, you know, Issachar and Zebulun and the various sons of Israel, or their, their houses. What we first hear of elders, um, the elders of Israel, is actually in the days of Moses. It's the elders that the Lord commanded Moses to go to with them, go to Pharaoh with the demand to let the Israelites go to sacrifice in the desert. So look at uh, Exodus 3, 16 to 18. Notice what he says here. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed, to, observed you and what you have done, uh, what, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of, uh, of the Hebrews, sorry, that's uh, unintentionally shortened that, has met with us. And now, please let us uh, go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. This picture of Moses and Aaron kind of marching into Pharaoh's office alone is not what happened. What happened was Moses recruited the elders of the tribes. And those elders were authoritative. They were, um, they, they were holding their tribes together. Moses had to go to them to talk to them about leading all the people out. So they are in charge in, in every way. Um, the tribes in the days of Moses, the elders also represented the people. So in other words, when Moses spoke to the elders, he spoke to the people. Which I promise you, I can almost promise you, maybe some of you really astute, very observant readers of the Old Testament have noticed this, but you'll see this now. You can't unsee it now once you see it. Look at uh, Exodus three fifteen and 16. Um, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you. So is he going to the people or is he going to the elders? In 15, go to the people, and in 16 he says, go to the elders. The answer is he's going to the elders. The elders represent the people. So there, there's, it's, it, sometimes it's kind of weird when you read the Old Testament because you see the father of the household doing something and all the household following, and people go, well, why did the household just you know, fall in line? There, there was no bucking the system. You don't overstep your bounds. If that, the patriarch does something in the family, that is the leader of the family. You don't overstep your authority here, right? I remember one time we were in China, and we were sharing the gospel with, uh, with just people in the villages. And strangest thing you will ever see is walking in, maybe not ever, but it, you walking into the, the, these villages where, I, I mean, it's a proper village. It's, you know, pretty much mud huts, uh, but with a very beautiful door on the front. And strange, like a door that would belong on an American house, but the rest is like a kind of a mud hut almost with a thatched roof. And people everywhere with those kind of, those, you know, those, you've seen those hats, the kind of triangle hats with the full brim, and, and a hoe over their shoulder and, you know, working. And then a teenager with Air Jordans and a Nike jacket on, looking like he stepped right out of an of a American high school. It's the strangest sight you'll ever see. But we were sharing the gospel through these villages, and the only ones in this particular village that would come up to us were these 16, 15 and 16-year-old kids. And they had their Air Jordans on. <laughs> nice jeans. They ain't worked a day in their life, all right? Okay, just be honest with you. Uh, and they're standing there and in their perfectly manicured haircuts and all this kind of stuff while their parents are out there working in the field. And we share the gospel with them. We ask them their permission to tell them a story, and we share the gospel. And they were some of the first English speakers we, we found. And um, so they listen to the whole gospel presentation, and, and at the end of the gospel presentation, there is a, a, more or less a, a, you know, something put on them. You need to repent and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sin. And 
they said to us, that sounds great to us, but you need to ask our parents for permission to believe that. And we were like, what? <laughs> that doesn't, that's, I don't understand that, because we don't think that way in America. We present the gospel to a 15-year-old, and we're like, well, I don't care what your parents say, right? You can believe the gospel right now and trust them. And, and so we read in the New Testament, the Philippian jailer, he and all his household were baptized or believed in the Lord. That's because you don't not believe in the Lord if the father of the household believes in the Lord. You, you're right there with him. We do what the Father says. And that, that's similar to the way the elders are, are here. They're representing the people before uh, Moses. Uh, look at 19, 7 and 8. Mo so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord co had commanded. And all the people answered together and said. Did all the people answer? Because that's not what he's... All, all the elders are the ones that are answering but the elders are representing the people. So if the elders all said it, then the people all said it too, right? The elders are uh, head amongst the people. All right, so the elders represented the people as their leaders and ruled them as judges, but they were not autocratic. When matters were as they should be, the elders were conscious of their obligations to God, whose people they led and represented before Him. So, what you'll, what you'll find in the Old Testament is that, hey, shocker, it didn't always work perfectly. Alright? Sometimes the, uh, the elders abused their privileges. Sometimes kings were really authoritative and squash the elders and sometimes it you know, they did all kinds of different things or sometimes they didn't lead the way they should but when things worked the way they should the elders not didn't just rule and just tell everybody this is how it goes but they actually presented to the people the way they should go and the people were responsible for responding to the way the elders of the family were, were ruling. Let's look at a few passages here that kind of point us in that direction. Joshua 24, 31, at the bottom of page 1 of your verses, sorry. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So the elders kind of take over once Joshua dies and they remember the works that God has done, and they're reminding the people of that. Judges 11, 4 to 11. Let's look at this. This is going to give us maybe the clearest picture of that. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites had made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be, will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So uh, you can kind of see how the relationship is working. The elders are responsible for, they want somebody to be this sort of military leader for them and, and lead them out into conquest. And then they're bringing them back and the, the people are going, we affirm, they're, they're saying yes to this leader. Um, all right. So uh, essentially there's a, there's a balance between the way the elders led the communities and the way the people, the families, the tribes responded to those elders. But what we see if we go back to the trip to Sinai, that on the way to Sinai, the leadership responsibilities of Moses became too great for him to do by himself. 
So following the advice of Jethro, his father-in-law, Moses deputized godly men to share these responsibilities. So let's back up for just a second. So you've got elders who are arising at the top of the families, and they're normally the older people in the families. They're normally very responsible for the families themselves and invested in the growth and the vitality of the families. They get the most to lose, all right? So they are uh, appointed as leaders. But it's, and, that, and that's all well and good as Moses interacts with the people. But it's not until they get out into the wilderness that Moses is kind of leading them through with his staff in his hand, and he's going, I can't do all this. I don't want to do all this. <laughs> that, that then the elders take on a little bit different role, and they begin to actually help a little bit more. So I want to show you this here in uh, Exodus 18, 13 to 26. A very wise man by the name of Jethro comes along, and he also happens to be a father-in-law, which go figure. Um, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, uh, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided for themselves. So the point is, the elders who were kind of, you know, over sort of ceded a lot of leadership ground to Moses, who's now deciding all the cases. What previously the elders in Egypt had been doing, now Moses is largely doing that, and Jethro goes, hang on a second. That's unwise, because you're going to burn yourself out. So what you need to do is deputize godly men to decide these cases. Now, what kind of cases are they deciding? What is this? Well, more or less, it's a court, right? But it's a, it's a theocratic court, right? So instead of what we would do now is one might sue another and they might go to a court to, to settle the dispute and the judge might say, well, in accordance with the law, you owe this person $50, all right? Moses instead would adjudicate the matter on the principles God has laid out in accordance with what God would say, or he would inquire of God, well, how should I do this? And God would tell him, well, you need to give the person $50. And he'd say, okay, well, you, got, you owe him $50. All right, so it's a theocratic court, right? But it's settling all matters of dispute. Or it might be that someone comes before Moses and just has an issue. I've got this leprous hand, or I've got this, you know, I've got this problem, you see. I've got this rash. And he's, he's able to then kind of do so in a little bit different manner, right? He's able to, to handle the, the things that are coming before him. But, but the point is that he's deputizing godly men to begin to adjudicate these matters, these smaller matters. Now, I want you to understand that my point tonight is not 
the pastor is Moses. Nope. That's not where we're going, okay? So don't hear me say that, all right? That's not the point. But I think what you're going to see is that when the New Testament church begins to go, okay, let's appoint elders in every church, that didn't, wasn't born in a vacuum. They didn't just go, hey, I got an idea. I've heard about this elder thing that we should maybe try. I read about it in People magazine. You know, that's not... That's not how they came to determine how the structure in the church should go. This was born out of a long history of God's people being led this way. And it starts here where Moses is deputizing godly men to begin to share some of these responsibilities. Well, at a certain point, not long after they left Sinai, so that was on the way to Sinai, okay? They had that issue on the way to Sinai. But not long after they leave Sinai, um, the burden of an ungrateful people becomes really hard for Moses. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how many times out in the desert they griped about the temperature? I can't even. <laughs> we live, listen, listen, we live in a climate-controlled United States of America, first world country. And do you know how many times I hear complaints about the temperature in the room? I can't. What's great is when I hear somebody come up and they go, it was so cold today, I almost froze to death. And the next person goes, it was so hot, I had to take off. And, you're, and this happened in small group on Sunday. You're there to testify, can I get an amen? My wife is going, I was freezing. And every other woman in the room was going, I was so hot today. How could you be freezing? And I was like, this is great. I want us to have this conversation. Let's keep it going so you can see. Welcome to my world. So anyway, the people begin to be very ungrateful. And they begin to say to Moses, why, didn't you, why did you just bring us out here kill us? Why, didn't you, why don't you just leave us back in, in Egypt? It was better under Pharaoh. They've forgotten what it was like to make bricks with no straw. And, and so they think, you know, this, this is what you've done and we hate it. And so Moses gets exasperated, as you can probably imagine, or maybe you can't, but I certainly can't. <laughs> These passages comfort me. <laughs> I'm just, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Numbers 11, verse 12, it says, Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that they should say to me, Carry them in your bosom. That's <laughs> a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers. Oh, I love that. Verse 14. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. So now you can see the burden is more than just making adjudication in their court cases. Now it's actually ministering to them personally. And it, it becomes far too much of a weight to even just minister them. And so look at what happens then. Uh, the Lord responds to Moses by uh, uh, anointing elders with his spirit. So uh, that's a capital H, his spirit, with God's spirit. Look at 16 and 17. This is how the Lord responds to Moses. Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. And bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. This is God's spirit that he's going to put on the elders. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it alone by yourself. Moses is shepherding these people. There's responsibilities for them that extend beyond court cases that are much harder to adjudicate and deal with, to be honest with you. And so uh, look at, let's see, we, yeah, in verse 25, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. And so you, you have that little thing there at the end, but they did not continue doing it. And what, why is that? Well, it makes pretty clear that the Spirit of God was needed for the demanding work of leadership. This is not just, again, He's not just a judge. He, he's not just ruling over them. He is actually leading them, and He is responsible for their well-being. 
for the way they think about things and the way they feel about things, and he's responsible for the way they respond to God. And it's too much for him to bear. He can't bear it all. And so God takes his spirit and puts it on the elders, and they prophesy. As soon as the spirit touches them, they begin to prophesy. And they didn't do it forever, meaning the Lord was ne- it was necessary for the Lord to continue to bless them. Whereas Moses, he endowed him with the spirit, the, the people he uh, gave, and in, 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 it seems like in a, in a somewhat temporary and ongoing fashion. But it, it means that the spirit was necessary for that demanding work of leadership. These elders needed that in order to assist him um, with all the work that, that God had for them to do. So, so Israel, as God's covenant nation, was to live by God's law, and the elders, as leaders, had to ensure that those under their care lived according to the stipulations of the covenant. So here again, the elders that have been now blessed with the Spirit of God and sort of deputized to help, help Moses lead these people and shepherd them in accordance with God's will, are, this is their role, what they're actually doing. Look at verse 20, or chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. So this is their, their goal. This is their responsibility, is that they're teaching the commandments of God to the people, being deputized as elders over the people and being endowed with the Spirit of God to essentially to preach. Um, So after Moses had written the law, he gave it not only to the priests, but also to the elders of Israel. And they were responsible for, to read it, to teach it to the people so that they might fear the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 31, 9 and 12. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Verse 12, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner with your towns, within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. So it's not just the priests that have the law, it's also the elders that have the law, and they have them for two different reasons. The priest is to take the law, and he's to put the law inside the Ark of the Covenant. But the elders are to take the law and give it to the people and tell them, you need to obey this. And you need to follow this. And the elders are there now as guardrails to help shepherd the people of Israel. So by the time we pick it up in Joshua and all these and judges and all these other places, the elders have are a multi-functioning role. One is ruling. They're appointing leaders over them, uh, mighty men to go to war, basically. And they're also uh, representing the people, but they're also teaching the people, shepherding the people, helping them to say, you need to follow the commands of the Lord. So the elders had a specific obligation to make sure that that Israel would know the contents of this important covenant uh, witness. The duty to each one's children, the precepts of the Lord, was well known. So, So if we back up just a second, we know that if we drill down to the individual family unit inside Israel... Who was responsible for the upbringing of those children, for the discipline and discipleship of the children? That was the the dad chiefly and the parents together, right? The dad was chiefly responsible. He does not get to uh, abdicate that responsibility of training his children in, in the ways of the Lord. He doesn't get to do that. And the mom was also there to help do that exact same thing, okay? They were designed, I think you've heard this before, as a helpmate to one another. Hmm? That sounds familiar? Hmm, that sounds familiar. All right, and you can see this 
in Deuteronomy 4, 9, so uh, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the, the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. So, all right, Dad, you're responsible. 6, 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words... The things of the Lord are supposed to be a normal conversation, right? It doesn't even just have to be, son, let's sit down and have the talk about the gospel, all right? No, this is supposed to be like breathing, like work is. Just like, just like you, would, you would go build a fence, all right? You got that kid's ear for the next eight hours, all right? Make it according to the Lord, so, in other words, several passages in Deuteronomy, it's well known, you're supposed to teach your children. But, here's what I want you to see. The elders were placed in parallel position with the fathers to make known to the congregation the great deeds of God. Look at 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He will show you your elders, and they will tell you. So the elders of the people are in parallel position with the fathers of individual families to teach the things of God to the people, right? So they were responsible in that regard to do that. Now, the elders of Israel carried prominence even under the monarchies of, uh, of David and Saul. I want to go through this a little bit quicker, but just you can read those passages later, but... The elders are still present with David and Saul, but it's interesting to see that as a king comes in, the elders begin to take a little bit less of a role, and the, the king begins to take more and more of the family responsibility for himself, begins to take a lot of the, the even the possessions of the families and begin distributing them, begin taxing the people and all those kinds of things. And so we see this especially under Solomon when he comes in and he rearranges the tribes, even. He kind of waters down the tribes, which were, part, which were made up of families and elders that were responsible for training their kids in righteousness and all those kinds of things. And Samuel comes in and begins to water down the boundaries between the tribes for tax purposes. And so he begins to appoint governors and different things like this. And he begins to take possessions from the people and redistribute what the families had across the nation of, of Israel and things like this. And wouldn't you know, so that happens there in 1 Kings 4, and wouldn't you know that the words of Samuel are coming back to us all the way deep into the pages of 1 Kings, and the words of Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, uh, it's on, I think it's on the next page there. 1 Samuel 8, 10 to 18, it's on page 7. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people, um, who were asking for a king from him, he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will... Take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers, to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So the words of Samuel are coming back, aren't they? That... A lot of things have been watered down, and, and, and even the influence of the elders over the people began to be watered down a little bit. So that's a lot to go through in the Old Testament, a lot of like trying to piece together history and trying to think about how families were formed and all of this kind of thing. And, and, and I, I get it, that's hard, but really, where does that come to bear? Well, when you get into the New Testament, what you'll find and I promise you, you, your eye will probably go to this a little bit more when you read the Gospels. You will see how frequently the elders come up in conversation 
as the Gospels are there present. So we, we remember the Pharisees, and we remember the Sadducees, and we remember the, the role that they played in kind of being a religious authority and a teaching authority. But I think you might forget the position that the elders played in the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, the elders were presented in the New Testament and even in the Gospels as a central authority figure in every area and town and synagogue, mostly in Jerusalem, and their role was to guard the teaching of the people. Now, this is where the elders go awry, all right? I'm just going to warn you, okay? This is where they, where they go awry. But you can see what their, what their goal was. All right, they're evil, but here's, let's see what their goal was. Look at fifth, Matthew 15, 2. Why do your disciples, this is a question being posed, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders so they do not wash their hands when they eat? So the elders had set up a tradition there that is you've got to wash your hand before you eat. Look at Matthew 21, 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So you can see what the elders' responsibility was, even though they're using it in, a, in an abusive situation and denying the Son of God. You can see that their goal, their role, is guarding the teaching of the people. They don't just allow any teacher to teach anything that they want to. The elders are responsible for what is being taught because they're responsible for the faith of the people. All right. Uh, and they perform some measure of rule and authority. If you look at Luke, uh, Mark 15, 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So they are responsible for casting a vote for what to do, how to adjudicate a situation. So what do we see? The same thing that was happening in the Old Testament of these elders being appointed and having some measure of teaching authority and responsibility of teaching authority and then some measure of rule and authority over how things are adjudicated amongst the children of Israel, that's still carrying through in the New, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. They're still abiding by those same principles. And, and there's, there's obviously more than one, right? There's elders. It's a group of people, and that's their responsibility. That's what they're doing. Now... What happens in the New Testament? All right, sorry, I, my keynote got out of whack here. Okay. The risen Christ has given elders to the church, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in the New Testament, as his under-shepherds for, for the purposes of leading, guiding, teaching, instructing, correcting, and exercising a measure of ruling authority over his people. So look at what's happened now in the New Testament. As they, very Jewish, they're bringing that into the New Testament and into the church. They didn't just fabricate this, make this up out of nowhere. They pull this from Old Testament history. And look at what they say now in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning or with grumbling. You hear Moses in there? How am I going to bear? Um, for that would be of no advantage to you. Look at Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention. This is Paul to the overseers of Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What has God done now in the elders there at Ephesus? What has He done? He has taken some of His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and has appointed elders and overseers over the church. And what is their purpose? Their purpose is to guide, to rule, to shepherd the people. To teach them the ways of God. To have a disciplining authority over them. We're not Moses. No, no. Jesus is Moses. He's the one that's got the Spirit. Alright? What He has given to all the members of His body is some of His Spirit. When we get to, when we get to thinking about congregational rule, the reason for congregational rule as opposed to elder rule is because he hasn't just given part of his spirit to the elders. He's given to everybody, right? So now what he's given to the elders is a measure of teaching authority, of shepherding authority, of guiding and leading authority, and he's given to the people a congregational authority. You've got gifts of 
some of you, of generosity. You've got gifts of hospitality. Some of you have gifts of evangelism. Some of you have gifts of multitude of different things. Things that may not even be listed in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit has given to you as gifts in the congregation. So the elders are still responsible to lead and to teach and to guide, but the difference now is that Christ has given His Spirit to all of His children. And all of them are responsible to respond to that leadership without groaning or complaining and all those kinds of things. There would be no advantage to you. Tracking? We seeing the through line here? Okay. Um... So instead of being an older person, this is another change here, instead of being an older person, which is what we see a lot in the Old Testament, is that here's an older person in the congregation that's appointed to lead. Instead of that, the change that's been made in the New Testament, if you'll look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, on the last page here, Paul says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So, the way Christ has distributed his gifts, when he says elders, that's a borrowed term from the Old Testament that comes over, and some of those principles still apply, and they're understanding why a group of men are appointed to lead and shepherd and guide a congregation, But contrary to what we see in the Old Testament, there's not an age limit on this. There's not an age minimum or an age maximum. What it is is a spiritual maturity. How long have they had this gift? That is the question. Because if this is just a new thing that you're recognizing, they become puffed up with pride and arrogance. They need to be mature and seasoned. Now, they might become a Christian earlier on in life, and been a Christian for a long time, and so they're going to be relatively young when they're elders, which seems to be an irony, right, in the term. Well, shouldn't this be an older person? Well, that's not the qualification that the New Testament gives. So there's, there's a, a ruling teaching authority that's borrowed from the Old Testament. We're not Moses. Again, let me reiterate that. But what is apparent is that the role of a plurality of elders in the early church was not an invention by the apostles. But it came from a long-standing tradition in Israel's history that is essentially, as we trace it all the way back to the beginning of Moses, this is how God wanted His people led. One might even argue that this pattern of leadership comes from the heavenly throne room itself. You remember this? Revelation 4.4, around the throne were 24 thrones, And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Now, remember what we talked about in the, in the Old Testament, what the elders were there doing? What were the elders' responsibility? They were to represent the people. Why are there 24 elders around the throne of God there in Revelation? Might it be that they are representing the people as well around the throne? Because what we see them saying, we're going to see multitudes saying later on in that book. So it seems that even God's throne room isn't led by one elder. Why? Because it's foolish. Because it wears him out. Because he can't bear the responsibility in the way that it needs to be borne. You can't do it. Look around churches today, and you will see pastor after pastor doing it by themselves, falling one right after another, burning smooth out. And the congregation hurts for a little while and then moves on to the next guy. And that guy has to pick up the pieces that shattered from his family that he left and that he neglected and that he did this and that. Why? Because he's doing a responsibility that was never meant to be done alone, ever. Not even Moses could do it. Questions? Should we vote?
you know, just <laughs> I still got some miles out of that joke. It's going to come back. I, I <laughs> you know, uh, I'll just add, I think there, is a, there, there can be a boogeyman out there of plurality of elders, and you Google it on the internet, don't do that. Please don't do that. If you're discipled by the internet, you will be angry and bitter like the rest of the internet, okay? But if, if you do hear from people, you'll hear, well, that's how da-da-da takes over. That's how power and authority, that's how... Listen, there's always a chance, whether you have a singular pastor or a group of men or you have whatever, that it can be toxic and abusive and just awful. It can happen in any church because we are sinful people. The question is not, what's the worst that could happen, all right? That's not the question. The question is, one, what does the Word of God say? Second, what is the best outcome that could possibly happen? And the best outcome is a group of godly men desire to lead the church, love them, serve them, teach them, guide them, and minister to them, and help lift the burdens off of one singular person and spread it out across a group of men who are desiring to do those same things. And that is to your benefit. That is to your blessing. Are we, we're going to get it wrong. There's going to be lots of times where we get it wrong and we totally miss and we, we whatever. Okay? That's going to happen. But, but what is it when it's, when it's working like a well-oiled machine and it's going at its best? People are being ministered to. That's what's happening at its best. Everybody is. And the more the congregation grows, by God's grace, the more the elder body would grow. So you get, let's say you had 30,000 people in one room. I mean, we're meeting at Coleman Coliseum, all right? And there's 30,000 people there, okay? I don't have a desire to lead a megachurch like that, but, but you get the idea. Let's say there is. Well, then hopefully there'd be 5,000 elders, that are pastoring the church. How do they pastor a church in Jerusalem with thousands of people coming? Well, there's at least 12 apostles being elders in that church, and there's, there's more, probably more than that. That's how. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for what it means and what it says, and we pray that we can trust it and that we can believe it and that we can see it on the pages of Scripture that we will, in the end, trust you and know that there are going to be sinful people doing sinful things. And yet, in, the, in spite of all that, your word never protects us. It never says that we're going to be completely immune from or protected completely from sinful people. It just doesn't promise us that. But we pray that in the midst of all that, you would give us wisdom to adjudicate, to lead, to guide, to shepherd well, that we might be able to present a congregation without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing before the throne on the day of judgment. That is the desire of our hearts. We want more than anything for our church to be healthy, vibrant, growing, and more than anything, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from now until he returns. So I pray that you would make this church for centuries, millennia, if it takes that long, bastions of gospel faithfulness in this community. And I pray that it would begin with this congregation here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.